0: Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're jumping back to the world of philosophy and we're going to be covering Marx today. Now, Marx is a figure that actually we do cover in both literature and in philosophy because he has influences in both areas. So if you remember, we did talk about Marxist criticism in in an episode in season one with literary criticism. And so some of this is going to hit some of those points again. And part of the reason that Marx has such a wide influence is that he really was uh, very well uh, uh, versed in several fields. He was very well versed in economics, he was well versed in politics, he was well versed in literary theory even. Um, he's someone who is a very systematic thinker. And part of this is because he is a uh, disciple early on of Hegel. Now, remember, we talked about Hegel and his, um, his dialectic, where you had the synthesis, or I'm sorry, the thesis, the antithesis, and then the synthesis. Well, Marx takes an idea similar to that and, and applies it to uh, a particular issue. For Marx, he applies that to the issue of class struggle. Now, a lot of people want to sort of throw this off on Marx and that, oh, there was no idea of class struggle until Marx came along. This is far from true. Uh, Marx isn't even the first communist. He's he's the one who is the most systematic thinker and the one who early in his um, intellectual career wrote the Communist Manifesto. But he sort of joined into that. Um, but he's also well-versed in what would be considered capitalist economics. Uh, Marx was definitely a student of the things that Adam Smith had written, of the things that Ricardo had written. Um, He wasn't just someone who, you know, was a philosopher and decided to put his ideas to economics. Uh, He had a lot of background in economics. He did a lot of study in it. Now, there's big differences between early Marx, which would be things like the Communist Manifesto, and his later works, which are works like uh, Das Kapital. That one, the Das Kapital, is enormous. It's a six-volume work. The first volume, just the first volume, is huge. Um, and the Communist Manifesto is basically a really thin booklet. The Communist Manifesto was not really meant to be as much of a Philosophy, a full philosophy, as it was sort of a rallying cry. So, if you look at a lot of the language in the manifesto, um, it it should remind you of things you read that you know pamphlets that were put out during the American Revolution and during the French Revolution and other times, because it was sort of a call to action. So, it wasn't really set up to be a an extremely systematic uh, analysis of capitalism. Um, Das Kapital Kapital and some of his other later works uh, are very much set up to be um, an analysis. And so you have to think of Marx as two different time periods. You have the early Marx who's very young uh, and naive on a few things. And then you have the older Marx who spent decades studying and and reading and, and calculating before he puts these things together. Um, I'm not going to go through, obviously, all of him because his philosophy is enormous. Uh, he will actually be one of the philosophers. We'll cover more in depth in future seasons when we get into individual philosophers, and there'll actually be quite a few episodes over him, the same way there will be quite a few over lots of other philosophers. Um, I want to talk about some of his main points, um couple of the things before we get into that. Um, Marx is often dismissed uh, as as being just sort of an idealist who created a utopia and was just kind of a dreamer and not a serious thinker. Well, if you read his more mature works and you look at, uh, you know, how much study he puts in and how much analysis he does of every level of society you'll realize this is not the case. What you might be able to say about the Marx who wrote the Communist Manifesto doesn't apply when you look at his later stuff. He was a very very serious thinker. He did put a lot of time, a lot of study, and like I said a lot of calculation into this. He's also one of the people who you know comes up with a lot of the calculations um, that are used in economics. Uh, he's considered one of the three uh, classical economic, economists. Uh, you have Adam Smith, Ricardo, and Marx. Um, so those things are to, uh, to keep in mind. Also, um, he became a little bit, uh, uh, I guess you'd say, disillusioned with some of the things he, he thought of in the Communist Manifesto because he thought that the... Um, the communist revolution was right around the corner. And when it failed to materialize, he sort of went in and dug deeper into study to try to figure out some of the ways why it didn't materialize. So a lot of the arguments that are made against him are are made because of the communist manifesto, not his later writings. The other big argument that's made against him, and this is the biggest one in the 20th century and beyond, is people will look to the Soviet Union, they'll look to China and North Korea and say, see, Marx's ideas didn't hold up. You know, Soviet Union completely fell apart, North Korea can barely feed itself, and China is slowly moving towards uh, having an economy that is a combination of communism and capitalism. But the problem with looking at those is none of those countries are ones that Marx... Would have even considered doing what he had in mind um, they didn't uh, they didn't address the main problems he saw with capitalism I've talked about this in earlier episodes. His problem with capitalism wasn't that there were rich people. His problem with capitalism was that the workers who created the wealth uh, had almost none of got almost none of it and had no say-so on how that wealth was used and how it was distributed. So if you look at what was done in the Soviet Union and China and North Korea, they didn't really address that. Yes, they got rid of the capitalists. The capitalists were no longer making the decisions how the wealth was redistributed. But they just replaced them with the Communist Party and then whoever the leader of that party was. So basically they just, you know, like like the Who song, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Um, they just changed one system of exploitation for another. The workers still had no say so, still had no voice. You know, if you look at what he really was talking about with his, you know, dictatorship of the proletariat, well, that means a dictatorship of the workers. The workers make all the rules. Well, how can the workers make all the rules? Well, they got to get together and discuss it, talk about it, and vote on it. So it has to be very democratic. What you had in the Soviet Union and China and North Korea is you still had all of the rules coming from the top. Everyone producing, uh, you know, all of the value in the society had no say so. You had uh, extreme censorship from the top, which basically crushed any ability to innovate. You know, part of the reason that Marx saw the workers as being the ones who should lead was they're the ones that actually did the work and knew the most about how it should be done so I'm going to go into some of the um, major criticisms that he makes against capitalism because even if you don't completely buy into the system of communism that he sets up which a lot of people don't and I don't believe all of the ideas of it either um, Marx like everyone else I've ever read has a lot of good ideas and a lot of bad ideas Um, the, the the important thing to do if you want to be a serious thinker is to wade through those. You can't just say, oh, bad person, throw everything they said in the garbage. Or, oh, this one idea didn't work, throw the whole thing in the garbage. Because that's just not the way you advance knowledge. You advance knowledge by looking at the ideas themselves and saying, which ones of these ideas actually have merit which ones of these ideas actually have value and then those are the ones that you kind of keep and then you look at the other ones and say yeah this is complete nonsense and you throw those in the garbage but one of the first problems that Marx has with capitalism is alienation and we've talked about this with literary theory Um, alienation in that the people who make the wealth not only don't have any say so over it But they're no longer really connected to the product that they're making. Now, Marx is in a time where industrialization is just kind of getting going, where specialization is just getting going. You know, he saw Adam Smith had talked about specialization of labor. And if you read Wealth of Nations, you'll see Adam Smith talking about, you know, a single man can't make very many pins on his own. But if you've got one man making this part, another one making this part, another one making this part... part, You know, in, in sort of an assembly line type system, you can make a lot, you can produce a lot. So, Marx did see capitalism as being a very successful and very revolutionary uh, form of, uh, of economics and of governing. Um, he isn't someone who's, you know, just says the whole thing is trash. He does acknowledge that it did, um, it did make advances, it did allow for more productivity. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about some of the problems of that in a little bit. Um, first, I want to talk about the alienation factor. You know, prior to the specialization of labor, you had skilled trades. Um, you had craftsmen. You had people who would, uh, if they were building a clock, they would build the entire clock. You know, they would do all of the parts of it. Uh, if you had someone that was building furniture, they would build the entire piece of furniture. And so there was a sense of ownership of the product, uh, a sense of this is something I have created. When you get into the much more specialized labor, one of, one of the things that happens is people are only doing a small part of the process, so they don't feel it's something that they've accomplished. You know, if you're working on a, a, you know, a car assembly line, for example and you're putting one piece on the car and bolting it down, and you just keep putting that same piece on the car over and over again, you don't have a sense that you built that whole car. Um, And and this is what he means by the workers being alienated. They're no longer craftsmen, Um, and they become more like cogs in the machine. Um, And as you get into the Industrial Revolution, literally cogs in the machine. They become easily replaced. You know, think about the jungle that we talked about with Upton Sinclair. You know They did the same thing with the meat packing industry. They made it so that each person did one simple task repeatedly all day long, and you got rid of the need for skilled butchers. You know no one understood the whole process. They just understood their one little job, which meant they didn't need much training. They were easily replaced. You know, if you have a a skilled trade, it takes sometimes years for you to be able to have an apprentice to the level where they can do the whole job. Uh, If you just need somebody to make a few cuts or tighten a few bolts or, you know, uh, uh, screw in a few things, you're not needing a lot of training for that. You can train someone to do that job in a few minutes, which means you get rid of the skilled labor you move labor to where it's unskilled labor and you also start to make it so that these people don't have any sense of stability and we'll get to that in another as another one of the points um now when we talked about literary theory we started talking about alienation in lots of other ways as well and marx does talk about these ways you know you become alienated from the present. Uh, One of the things about uh, industrialization, about specialization of labor, about the factory system in particular, is that you want things to be very regular. Human beings work at different paces. Um, Some some people work fast, some people work slow, and, and even an individual will have you know, times where they're moving fast and times where they're moving slowly. These are sort of the natural uh, human rhythms. Um, and and capitalism kind of cuts these off. It It wants speed in production at a measured rate, preferably the highest rate possible. So you don't have that uh, natural connection to time. Time starts to be measured, in fact. We start going to artificial time. This is another alienating factor because humans, for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, we live by natural time. You know, what time is it? The sun's coming up. It's time to wake up. What time is it? Uh, the sun's straight up in the sky. It's time to eat lunch. You know, uh, what time is it? All oh, the, you know, crops are ready to be harvested, we need to harvest them, or we need to plant them, so that the the natural time that humans lived under was sort of human time in the time of nature. The Industrial Re- Revolution strips that away. We start living by the clock, you know, and think about how much of your own life is ruled by the clock. Um, you know, why do people rush to work? Well, because they got X number of minutes to get to work. If they leave in time, they got X number of minutes, they can stop and get their coffee. Then they got X minute number of minutes in case there's a backup on the freeway and then they have to punch in at a certain time. And then all of their day is measured out while they're at work till break time. And they've only got so long measured for breaks and and so forth. And it creates an alienation as far as from natural time, but also an alienation from the present. You know, if you think about what most people are, you know, how how they're dealing with time, they're always thinking about a time that they're not in. You're either reminiscing about the good old days in the past or looking forward to your vacation. So, you know, when you're on va- at work, all you can think about is getting off work, going home or getting your vacation and going on vacation, and even when you get on vacation, you can't enjoy it because all you're thinking about is, oh, I got to go back to work in four days. Oh, now I got to go back to work in three days. Now it's only a day and a half. And so we're always sort of pulled out of the present. Another problem is that with alienation is that you're alienated from a sense of what is... What is the accomplishment line? What is the end line? What's the goal? Um, You know, there is no goal for how much wealth you should accumulate. Uh, No matter how wealthy you are, you always have to get more. And so this alienates you from, uh, you know, feeling satisfied. You always feel like you need to have more. It also alienates you from sort of the natural... uh, sense of belonging in the world, because the world went from a place where, you know, it it had uh, common areas that everyone had, and then you had some private areas that were owned by private individuals, to a a time and a place where every single thing has to be owned. This is one of the reasons for the expansion and the colonization, was that in Europe and in England and, you know, particular all of the land was already owned so if you wanted to create wealth you know by growing crops or something you didn't have the option of going out and finding some land and growing crops not within england you had to go to the new world you had to go to africa you had to go to india you had to go somewhere else and and sort of start purchasing that so you get to a sense where everything is owned by someone and this alienates Uh, people from a sense of the group you know there's nothing that's ours that we share everything becomes mine or not mine Uh, the second argument that he makes against capitalism is it causes insecurity Um, since workers are mostly unskilled and performing simple tasks you can replace them easily you can easily just fire them and get someone for cheaper And one of the things that happened frequently um, was that, you know, they figured out it was cheaper to hire children than adults, so they would often fire adults and hire children instead for a much lower wage. So a lot of times families would actually have to sell their children, practically, uh, into the labor force just so they could survive because, you know, the, the adults couldn't find work. So you get this insecurity. You could lose your spot at any time. This is not something that was uh, very common for humans prior to capitalism. Um, prior to capitalism, the only way you would really lose your spot, because everything was you know, firmly grounded in the feudal system, would be if another country invaded and took the land you know if somebody else came in and took it away that way but you know as long as you weren't invaded and lost your country that way you were pretty much tied to a space if you were a peasant farmer you were you were sort of tied to that land and you knew you were going to be there they weren't going to outsource your job to another uh you know, country. They weren't going to just kick you off the the property and put somebody else in. But with capitalism, as the employees are, you know, treated and viewed as disposable cogs in the machine, uh, there's a sense of insecurity and instability. You never know when you're going to lose your place, when you're going to lose your job. You know, and this is something that is still, still there in capitalism. It hasn't gone away. You know, think about how many people worry about what am I going to do if they send my job to another country or if they, you know, automate my job and now a robot's doing my job. So there's the constant sense of insecurity uh, at every moment that the workers have to deal with. The third issue he had, and this one we talked about a little bit with one of his main issues with against capitalism, is that workers made little profit of what they did. You know, they're actually doing the work, producing the wealth, but they get very little of it. Um, And, you know, Marx sees this as a form of theft. If you're creating, you know, uh, tens of thousands in wealth, and they're giving you, you know, tens or hundreds of dollars, uh, that... Those thousands are basically being stolen from you. Um, and and so he sees, you know, capitalist labor as a form of theft because the people who are not producing the, the wealth are getting all of it. Um, and it's a form of exploitation. The fourth um, problem that he sees with capitalism is that it's unstable. Uh, in earlier times before capitalism, and this is one of the... Things where the success becomes uh, a liability at some point. You know, Marx, as I said earlier, did see capitalism as being extremely successful. It was extremely... It, w- it was able to be productive, very productive, much more than the systems that came before. The problem is that it was too productive. Uh, it was it was able to make much more that can, than what could be used. Um, and if you you know, know anything about the the value of things. When things are scarce, the prices are higher. When things are overly plentiful, the prices crash. And so because of the efficiency, capitalism was creating these um, periods of basically bust where they'd have so much stuff that they produced, they couldn't get rid of it. They couldn't sell it. And then that whole system would collapse for a while and, you know, you'd have... Layoffs, you'd have unemployment, you'd have places closing, uh, and eventually the substances created would get used up and there'd start to be a demand again and things would come back, uh, you know, come back into use. But these, you know, regular unstable periods uh, were happening frequently. And again, if you think this is you know, just Marx making this up out of nothing, and this isn't true. You know, look at how often we have major recessions or even depressions. You know, they, capitalism has a crisis about every 10 years now. Um, and so we have these constant downturns where it seems like everybody's doing well, everybody's got a lot, and then all of a sudden it all falls apart. And, you know, everybody's scrambling, trying not to lose everything they have. The fifth um, problem that he has for it is that, you know, not only is capitalism bad for the workers, it's bad for the capitalists as well, because he sees this as a way of uh, them losing their humanity. You know, as, as, as humans, we are social creatures. We do need each other. Uh, we're also individual creatures. We have individual identities. You can't ignore either one of those factors. You know, where one of the issues that most systems have is that they go too far to one direction or the other. They want to say, oh, the only thing important is the individual, or no, oh, the only thing important is the group. And both of those are recipes for catastrophe. You know, we are not completely individuals. We we rely on each other a lot. If you don't believe this, take a perfectly you know, healthy, wonderful, beautiful, perfect baby and put it outside Tell it to make good decisions and see what happens. You know, it, it would die quickly. Um, we require each other for basic survival, uh, at a young age and even for basic survival as we get older, you know, think about the clothes you're wearing right now. Did you make those clothes? Did you grow the fibers or, you know, uh, drill for the petroleum and then process it into synthetic fibers? Uh, Did you grow all the food you've eaten today? Did you build the car that you rode in or drove? Did you build the roads that you drove on? You know, these are all ways where we have to depend on each other. We are social creatures. We couldn't have any of these things if it was just everyone on their own doing it on their own. Now, the other... Extreme is just as bad, where you have everything is collective and there's no individuality at all, because then you now don't have any innovation. Everybody's doing the same thing the same way for all of eternity. Nothing ever improves. And in fact, what, what ends up happening is once, a, you know, sooner or later you hit a catastrophe. And if nobody knows how to think of things in different ways, if you don't have any individuality... Well, basically, the whole system goes over a cliff together. Um, another problem that with capitalism uh, being a uh, being bad for the capitalists is it also dehumanizes as far as human relationships. Um, this is one of the reasons, and a lot of people don't quite understand why Marx, you know, attacks uh, the the idea of marriage and things like that, is that under what he calls capitalist marriage it's a financial uh it, it's a it's a financial situation um it's it's an ownership uh relationship you know the, there's sort of the view that the husband owns his wife he owns his children um as opposed to no the 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 wife is a human being the same way that the husband is a human being no one owns anyone else. Uh, but it it sort of takes away your humanity by making you feel that everything and everyone is just a commodity, uh, and when everything and everyone is just a commodity, you can never be satisfied with it. Why? There's always a better one. Uh, there's always a younger one. There's always a you know whatever. Uh, and this is this is the problem that Marx sees. He doesn't see you know, capitalism as being something that's great for marriage and that, you know, is creating great, strong families, he sees just the opposite. Um, he sees lots of infidelity. You know, one of the misconceptions about uh, the way the world is and the way the world has been is I've, I've heard so many people talk about, well, in the good old days, people didn't cheat on their spouses. Yeah, they did. They did it quite frequently. And, in fact, the upper classes were the worst to do it. You know, if you look into Victorian England, which is really the time period of, of uh, you know, of, of when Marx is writing, uh, the Victorians kind of had the unofficial saying of marry who you have to so you can sleep with who you want to. You know, once the firstborn child was, male child was there and you had the heir and you were going to pass all of your stuff down to him, it didn't matter who else gave birth, you know, who else was fathered the, the children after that. And so there was a great amount of infidelity. And these are all things that you know, Marx was looking at. Marx wasn't just looking at numbers. Uh, he was actually looking at society on lots and lots of different levels. And so his criticisms were wide-ranging. Um, they weren't just you know, rich people are bad. They were you know, looking at the system and how it changes people. How it forces everything into an ownership. How it forces everybody and everything into being a disposable commodity. Uh, and you know these uh, these criticisms that Marx made, we can still see. I mean, you can look at society today, capitalism, where we think capitalism is won the day, and the others, you know, Marxism is completely thrown aside. Even if that were true none of the criticisms that he made about capitalism have been addressed. You know, there's still amount, a large amount of alienation, even more than in the past. You know, people now don't, because of technology improving, don't even have as much a sense of community as they used to. Why? Because you're more likely to know someone on the other side of the planet than you are to know the person who lives next door to you. You know, we've we've kind of gone farther and farther away from uh, the world of people and the world of uh, community and we've moved farther into the world of things, the world of stimulation. And one of the things that Marx addresses as he became a more mature thinker and a more mature writer that he didn't understand in the Communist Manifesto was he didn't understand that capitalism has a lot of ways of kind of what would i guess what would be considered indoctrinating people into the system and if you think about it you know think about how much of uh, people's idea of the value of a person has to do with are they a productive member of society you know th- this that's something that's you know considered very important you're supposed to be a productive member of society uh, what does that exactly mean? Well, it means you got to work really hard. you got to go to work on time all the time. And if you don't, everyone looks down on you. And not only that, this, these ideas become so ingrained that you start to look down on yourself. Now, these are things that Marx saw and addressed directly, but you can see how much more this has become true today. You know, Marx was living prior to uh, electronic media at all. No radio, no TV, none of that stuff. Advertising, that that stuff really didn't uh, come into popular use. This is something that really takes off in the 20th century. Uh, And so one of the things that, you know, capitalism in the 20th century really got better at doing was selling itself um, by, you know, wonderful commercials that made you th- realize, oh, my life will be empty unless I have this product or that product. And as, you know, media became more sophisticated and more all in, you know, all invasive in our lives, it, it's everywhere. And, and, it's, and it's not just advertising. You know, think about the kinds of movies and television shows that are made. Um, most of them don't show how happy you are having nothing how happy you are just to have enough to eat and a place to live and people around you who love you this is is not the basis of most shows you know think about the extreme amounts of wealth that most of these people not necessarily display that they have but the things they do imply that if you don't have this certain amount of wealth you can't do these things you can't live like these people and these people are your heroes these are the people you want to live like you know how many even you know kind of romantic movies where you have somebody whose you know relationship falls apart their life falls apart so they'll move to italy or move to france or you know london or somewhere and, and you know and just restart their life and get it all back together well to be able to do this you have to have a certain level of wealth Uh, most people couldn't just lose everything they have and go you know i'm just going to go to france and start over and i'll get me a nice little uh you know house in the country and i'll you know uh, have all of these adventures no you 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 don't have that luxury Um, most people are if they lose their job if they lose their marriage if they lose the few things they do have, they'll be lucky if they're not living in the streets. And so there's sort of this, uh, in the 20th and 21st century, there's sort of a dual-edged sword that comes out. Uh, One is this constant showing you of the good life, uh, and the other is kind of hinting at what is going to happen to you if you fall behind, if you become one of those homeless people that are anonymous and that no one cares about and so these uh, fears were existent to some point in Marx's time period but now even more so it's even more pervasive you know think about some of the shows that we have and how the whole premise of the show is this is what rich people do and don't you wish you could be them You know, how many reality shows do we have where the whole goal of the show is to become wealthy, to become, you know, famous? Uh, And and that's sort of the goal that a lot of people have. We've, We've almost come to the point in our society where we don't feel we even exist as a human being unless we're famous. Oh, that's that's just a nobody. They don't count. Who cares what happens to that person? Oh, this person's famous. Oh, I wonder what, you know, I wonder what kind of uh, uh, snacks they have when they go to the cafe. You know, and we have people following around rich people, taking pictures of what they're eating, taking pictures of what they're wearing, what they're doing every moment of the day. And all of these things, you know, Marx, if he were alive, would talk about, yeah, this is... How capitalism keeps you in line. It fills your head with artificial needs, and it fills your head with fears. So much so that your only thought is, don't fall behind. Keep making more, keep working harder, or else you're going to be useless. Okay, I'm going to break off this episode. Um, My next episode, as I said, will be on the film uh, Metropolis. Which is a silent film. If you get a chance to watch Metropolis, you can generally find it in a lot of places for free online. Uh, it's a 1927 film. Uh, don't watch the uh, newer Japanese anime film called Metropolis. It really has nothing to do with the with with the one I'm going to be talking about. So if you watch the newer one, the the anime you're going to be wondering what in the world I'm talking about as I'm discussing the film. Uh, This is the Fritz Lang silent film. Um, Now, I know a lot of people aren't huge fans of silent films because they haven't really been produced in a long time, but I definitely think if you can cultivate the taste for them, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Uh, There's a a lot of... uh, there's a lot more physical acting that has to go on in a silent film. Uh, we we forget how much words convey, but also how much meaning gets conveyed just through body language. And the silent films were, you know, they did a masterful job of showing, uh, you know, telling whole stories, mostly with body language and facial expressions. Um, so we will be talking about that next time. I hope all of you are doing well. I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.